living in Europe for a few years gives you a little, gives me a little perspective. I go home and it feels like the wild west. Like, and I'm like, I want to do crimes. Like I'm not going to get caught. Gil. Hello. Lillian. Hi. And Owen. Hey. So this episode is our next entry in our What is Liberalism series. More specifically, we'll be discussing the relationship between the institutions of policing and liberal democratic societies. Unlike any of our most of our previous episodes, we are not reading one philosophical figure or work. Instead, I asked my podmates to read a range of articles in contemporary political economy, moral philosophy, and criminology. This episode works as a sequel of sorts to an episode we did early on that considered the meaning of security. So you should definitely go listen to that one, then come back to this one. Today, we will be explicitly discussing why the police are necessary for liberalism and, at the same time, a recurrent source of the legitimation crises of the liberal state. One of the authors we read for today states that under the liberal state, quote, law applies equally to everybody. This equality is the defining principle of liberal democratic orders, guaranteed in constitutions and bills of rights. Indeed, the rule of law is the defining principle of the modern state, end quote. If this is the case, then law must be institutionalized in social life. It must be more than a set of formal rules gathering dust in some law library. There must be enforcement mechanisms to ensure that the law is applied equally to everyone. The police, as an institution, are crucial for integrating citizens into the normative demands of liberal society and coordinating the expectations of the citizenry that the law does, in fact, rule. The police are not an extrinsic or ad hoc institution grafted onto liberalism. They are a defining character of any liberal order worthy of the name. For this reason, I think defenders and critics of liberalism alike ought to have a detailed understanding of what is intrinsic to the institution of the police and what is modifiable. But what are the police? To simply say that they are the bearers of law and order is to run together two distinct yet intertwined facets of policing. Law enforcement is rather self-evident, insofar as the institution of the police has the authority to discipline legal infractions. But what is the order of law and order? If we look at what police actually do, we will notice that they are called upon to address more than explicit infractions of the law. They are also called upon to maintain broader social control and order. In other words, they are tasked with guaranteeing that the behaviors of the population remain in line with the needs of social equilibrium. Ironically, this means both in practice and, I would think, in theory, that the maintenance of social order often requires discretion about when to enforce the law. The police do not stop every speeding car, fine every jaywalker, or arrest every person who uses drugs. I'm sure we will discuss this in the episode, but of course we should ask how our social order selects who will be disciplined for legal infractions. To enforce the law everywhere, every time, equally, would risk disrupting the social order by calling into question the legitimacy of the state's enforcement powers. I can't help but think if the police actually did stop every person who sped, that would make transit, transportation, getting to work, getting home, interminable. If we think of the police as an institution, which means it is defined by explicit rules and the regularization of social behaviors, we can see that the discretionary judgment is intrinsic to what we call the police. Now, the obvious response to this is to say, of course, the police do not enforce every law in the books equally. What matters is that they enforce the law for serious crimes that entail violence. This is what brings together two out of the three articles we read today, is that so far as they are animated by the, this question, why is there so much violence in the social order of the United States? 
Crime is obviously disruptive of order, and so the police are authorized to deploy violence in order to control crime. However, the excessiveness and ubiquity of the police as we find them in the United States is not a given, David Garland argues. Instead, it follows from the distinctive liberal political economy and thin welfare state of the U.S., quote, together with the intertwined legacies of racial oppression, segregation, and exclusion that have played a major role in bringing about these control failures and in shaping the state's responses to them, end quote. Low levels of employment protection, weak trade unions, lightly regulated labor markets, and high proportions of workers in low-wage, insecure jobs contributes to social conditions in which social disorder will flourish. If we remind ourselves that the police not only enforce the law, but maintain social control and order, then we can see that the police help maintain a liberal social order that will continually appeal to the police to resolve social dysfunction, but the means the police use to enforce order often beget more social dysfunction. And so the police come to look like both symptom and cure. Discretion and enforcement of the law and the use of violence to maintain social control and order seem to me to be two intrinsic features of the police institution in liberal democratic societies. But it's also just these features that threaten liberal societies with instability when the state is either weak or overextends itself. Either way, the police are a crucial object of analysis for understanding liberal political economy across a variety of nations. There's, of course, much more to say. I have not spoken about the imprecation of the police in racism or immigration enforcement, for instance, because I wanted to present a relatively even-handed uh, even case of what it means to talk about the police in liberal societies. So with that, I will hand it off to you all. What did you think of the articles, and did I get anything wrong in my introduction? No, I think you're correct. Nice. Wrap it up. Um, <laughs> Clip it. <laughs> I, I do think that uh, there was one article, and I, I actually read it a few days ago, so I can't remember the name. The guy whose name starts with a G, the one about the political economy and the uniquely liberal economy. Uh, Dave, of the David Garland. US. David Garland. Yeah. Garland. Okay. I actually thought that was a very good article, and I think that um, it creates a wider and longer view for, um, I think, what is like an emerging not consensus, but an emerging in influential view in like materialist political economy. So I'm yes. also thinking about the, the Catalyst article about the economic foundations of mass incarceration. And the reason I raise that is that there's like a kind of counter movement against Michelle Alexander's view, the new Jim Crow, that I find very persuasive and like rooting the argument in certain problems that the society is not able to solve given the kind of economy it has. I mean, and this is always a variable, the relative weakness and like lowest level of state capacity is the word that Garland uses to like both redistribute wealth and no like political agent that can create wealth, wealth distribution. So when that happens, there's a, the confluence of forces, like you both have, it becomes easier and cheaper to control the population in this way. And I just think I, I find that to be a very provo provocative argument. And it, it raises really serious questions about the economic alternative that can support something different in, in the U.S., both in the medium and in the long term, um, because I do think it's a, like the, the big question mark is American exceptionalism. Like it is a distinct like it is only comparable to much less developed economies. And you have to explain that. And of course, there's, you know, one is like the new Jim Crow explanation and, and the other is, is this. And I just, I, th I find this to be more, more big picture and, and more challenging politically. Could you say a little more or could one of you explain a little more about what's the Michelle Alexander and new Jim Crow? Yeah, I was curious about that too. Yeah. View to which this constitutes an alternative? It starts being about a specific mode of, of like, like the goal is racial control that it's much more strongly motivated by that. And then right. um, mm -hmm. uh, like in that view, petty crime, nonviolent crime is disproportionately seen to be the problem. So like the war on drugs, locking up people yeah. for petty crime is the reason. Whereas um, the alternative view, it takes like actual disorder and violence to be a problem that is real and that the state has to do something about Mm. and the political responses to that that's something right okay cool and then what someone like garland is is doing is suggesting that the sort of social disorder as 
you know, disproportionately found in these communities is a direct result of a dysfunctional liberal political economy, right? That is to say that, mm-hmm. yeah, precarity, joblessness, consequences of deindustrialization, especially in urban centers, underfunding. Lack of a meaningful welfare state. A complete lack of a meaningful welfare state, right, gives rise to a high degree of social disorder to which then policing and incarceration constitutes maybe the only major response in the United States. It's not clear that there is any other sort of governmental policy aimed at doing something about this high degree of disorder. Can I just add one more point? So, Because it's one more contrast with the, the new Jim Crow view, which I think it, the way in which it talks about it being an intentional, relatively intentional mode of mm-hmm. racial control, like as the goal, is that it tends to rely, at least what I remember from that book, and it's been a while, but it tends to rely on the strategic behaviors of high-level political officials at the federal level, mm. um, whereas this alternative narrative sees it more as an, a, a convergence of local strategies mm. to disparate but similar problems across the country. So there's more like convergence yeah. toward an incarceration strat- strategy as opposed to like a strategy that was came first mm. for racial control and then car- incarceration follows. So I think those are, they're like coming from different directions is my interpretation. That's helpful. I was just going to say that I think there's something like worth worth clarifying about the difference. You know, we said we have to like, you know, the police are the only ones that are mobilized, are the only state institution mobilized to quote, like do something about like this disorder and doing something about it is a little bit misleading, I think, because there's a vast gulf that separates addressing it, addressing the material conditions that make, you know, what a lot of these figures call like crimogenic conditions, um, you know, versus the tactic that is utilized in the United States, which is neutralization and containment, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? To try to just Mm -hmm. push and to isolate and to incarcerate and to push away the, like the actual agents of violence or crime or whatever, rather than actually, I don't know. Yeah. Do actually doing something about it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what was really fascinating in the Garland article, and from what I gather from all of you, we we all really enjoyed the Garland reading. Is you know, he seems to be thinking that you know this sort of what he calls the penal exceptionalism of the United States, you know, is rooted in the fact that it seems as and this is actually kind of surprising that the United States might actually have weak state capacity. That yes. you know its institutions actually might be uniquely um, dysfunctional and mm-hmm. unable to actually produce not just produce you know the ideas of the policies that could do it but actually enforce and have the political will and coordination to develop the types of policy that would address what you know Owen's calling the the crimogenic conditions and so the reason why I think that that's interesting is you might think that you know with you know the way policing and you know incarceration works in the United States that's evidence of an incredibly strong state but you know on Garland's yeah. argument it yeah. is actually the evidence of a, an incredibly weak and dysfunctional yes. state yes. that own that has one hammer and so everything turns into a nail for it. Nice. Now, yeah. to be very clear, um, yeah, I just want to say this real quick. And I, go, I, I see, if you're listening to this and thinking that you know what we're saying or what Garland is saying is that you know so racism and those ideologies don't matter, that's not the argument at all. That clearly shapes how this hammer is deployed, yeah. and that's why I was mentioning that discretion <laughs> seems to be an important part of policing mm-hmm. because you know yeah. there actually doesn't have the capacity, but also. So no state can enforce all of its laws equally. That would be that would encourage riots and rebellion, et cetera. And so how that discretionary use of judgment is used, given where there is violence and disorder, that is also what creates these sort of internal tensions and contradictions. And so And importantly what? sorry, I keep interrupting because I'm excited. No, 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 no. I, no, I, I, okay. I just thought one, one really quick thing though, is just that yeah. it's very at this point about discretion. It is very important to remember that cops actually don't know anything about law usually. Like, they don't know shit about law. So <laughs> discretion, like, it's not part of your training as a cop to, like, have an exhaustive knowledge of of your, like, municipal, state, or, or federal law. So I do think that's it. I just want to emphasize okay, that point about discretion. Yeah, I think it's absolutely right. Like, But discretion is also important for this reason. And I, so I want to say first that I think what you said was really right, Will, that when you stop, when you start to see it, 
as not a problem of, of a strong state, like an overbearing state. Mm-hmm. And you kind of, if, if you see that what is distinct about the American state isn't that it has a f- strong federal structure, it's the opposite, that the federal structure is weak and the states are uh, highly localized and actually, and, and I'll get to this, the, 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 the legal system is more democratic on a local basis than is typical. Um, because they're responsive to elections in a population that is worried about various things, mm-hmm. um, you really increase the 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 range of uh, local discretion, both on the part of law enforcement, uh, city managers, state managers, state managers, and their responsiveness to the local population. That's a really, really different way of thinking about the development of these institutions than thinking that the federal level is where it's happening. Because all of the stuff we talk about when we talk about policing on the whole is happening on a state by state and even county by county mm-hmm. level. It's like there, there are federal prisons, but that is not where the policy is being generated and generalized from. And then you see that the federal system has very little few ways of intervening in the structure or of redistributing wealth. And right. suddenly I think you have a much bigger political economic problem than just too much discretion based on bias. Like there's a different set of yeah. channels that disparities become reproduced through. This is why this is precisely why it's possible in the United States to end up learning the names of like sheriffs in like Arizona, like Joe Arpaio. Like Arpaio, yeah. Right, (laughs) who's, you know, a sheriff is in charge of the police force in a particular county, but like there's basically, there's very little above someone like that. And so he gets to drive a lot of policy in terms of what it is that actually cops are doing on the ground in his district. Federally, there's very little, comparatively speaking. And so, yeah, I really do like tying this analysis to uh, the claim that it's a weak state uh, that we're dealing with one with very diminished capacities. It's just the case that compared to almost every other developed nation, we have extremely poor labor protections, welfare resources, education systems, um, rehabilitation like efforts, all of which just contributes to uh, yeah a general a generalized social disorder, which is spatially diver- spatially disparate. Right, it's different depending on where we're looking, but it leads to this situation where it's just like, like you said, you only got the one hammer and all of these totally different sorts of problems just become so many nails. There was a really great quote. If I can read this quote from the Garland article, I really thought this was powerful. Going back to that idea of like, do the police quote unquote, do something in the American popular imaginary, the answer is yes, right? Like people think that like, oh, we've got all these problems. There's violent crime, there's drug use, there's what have you. Well, what are we going to do? Shore up, you know, funding for the police, you know, get more beat cops out there on patrolling or what have you. But like you said, does that actually address the underlying conditions that cause the criminality and social disorder in the first place? And the answer to that's manifestly no, right? It doesn't get to like what you were talking about, what you called Owen, those like, crimogenic conditions. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the things that we should like think about is how how to have a conversation that convinces more Americans that the you know the the policy focus ought to be building a welfare state or you know actually addressing these underlying conditions of social disorder. So there's here's the quote that I wanted to read. This is from the Garland article. He writes, "Social policy interventions are generally more long-term and more expensive." even if they would work out cheaper in the long run. Uh, And their impact upon crime is less targeted and less direct. Given powerful resistance to taxation, Republican opposition to Mm -hmm. social spending, the short-termism of election cycles, popular hostility towards ex-prisoners and people on welfare, and a division of political power that allows numerous opportunities to veto controversial legislation, American governments are generally predisposed to reject preventative social investments and rely instead on post-facto responses." End quote. So I, I just think there's so much that's really rich about that. And I guess like the thing that we ought to think about as people on the left is how to make it more apparent to the electorate that actually that long-term social investiture is the solution to this problem and that post-facto responses like throw more cops at a place that's already destitute is disastrous socially. Yeah, I, I just coming back to this point about how local American policing is. 
I do think, so I don't want to lose track of that. That's an extremely important point to make. I do think, though, that that all of those different local police, all those counties, all these different, you know, municipal and local police uh, organizations, that they are all ultimately responding to a similar set of circumstances, though. Like, it varies, obviously, but the issue across the United States is one of all the things we've been describing, right? The desocialized labor, the lack of unions, lack of a welfare state, whatever. And so increasing demand for the police to institute, at least by ruling classes, right? To, and, and, you know, not just ruling classes, like, you know, bourgeois people, whatever, um, to institute, to, to put in place the kind of order that is lacking from all these other institutions that would otherwise put it in place. Mm-hmm. And there's like a, there's this, we didn't talk about him in this thing. I don't want to bring up too many people, but <laughs> Loic Wacon, like the sociologist, French sociologist that I really like, he has this uh, expression about American policing, which is that like, there's a kind of correlation between the increasing power of the invisible hand and the correlative necessity of the iron fist and he says, like, these things, are, they, these things grow together, mm. right? The more the invisible hand becomes, like, hegemonic, the more, the, like, the market is left entirely, de- like, unregulated and free, the more authoritarian measures you need. So it's, like, it's not, it, that, that, to me, that helps explain this whole, like, weakening of the state or also strength of state situation that we were kind of mm-hmm. touching on, which nice. is that, like, the, uh, as the state weakens at the hands of, you know, liberal, neoliberal, whatever you want to call it, neoliberal or neoliberal market forces, the stronger the iron fist of the punitive element of the state has to become. And it's such a fucking insane imbalance. Like, we're like, there is nothing left for well-being and everything is invested in pain. It's such a fucking insane way to to try to address social order. Uh, Yeah, and I think what's actually really key there, and so um, one of the optional things that I sent the the group to read was um, this art, I think he's a sociologist named Jeffrey Hodgins on what is an institution. And the reason why I sent that is because what what is happening here is that with this tension between the weakening of the state and the strengthening of of the iron fist is that increasingly the the liberal state is vulnerable to legitimacy crises. You know, Mm. that what I tried to draw out is that, you know, the, the discretion and the violence, you know, sometimes they work hand in hand, but also sometimes they make manifest the particular populations that this supposed principle, uh, you know, the equal application of the law does not actually apply in real life. Yes. And so what happens is, it, it, you know, in the attempt to generate social equilibrium, it actually creates vast disequilibrium. And so, you know, what I'm starting to think hmm. here is something along the lines of, Institutions of social control are clearly necessary for social equilibrium. The question is, why is our only institution for social control the police? Penal and there are, there, there are attempts to try to generate, you know, sort of like community institutions for social control. But here's the problem. Those institutions require funding. They require encouragement. And, you know, I was talking to a friend last night who um, worked with a lawyer in a neighborhood in Chicago um, run by these young people trying to address crime in their neighborhood. And they go to Lori Lightfoot in order to get money. She just... She says no. No, just no. And all the money that is available goes Shocker. to the increasingly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like, you know, on this podcast, you might not be <laughs> surprised. You can see my face. I'm doing my, <laughs> I'm doing my surprised yeah. face. And so all of this is a long way of saying is that, you know, the police also raised the question of, you know, what other institutions does the institution of police prevent from coming about? What other sort of rules and behaviors, you know, could we generate that we don't have the capacity to, to create? And if, you know, equilibrium is necessary, it starts to seem like it is hard to get out of the bind that we need the police, that the police are the only answer. And yet their answer, as I kind of said in my my comments, is both symptom and cure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not just hard. I actually think it is hard to get out. I mean, it doesn't just seem that way. I mean, and then I just Mm want to, some, you know, when people start imagining different institutions, I I don't have like a straightforward answer. Like I'm I'm a pretty like... um, I mean, I have a general one, but I, I like, you know, I'm no better than anyone else in, in knowing exactly what to do. Is the general exactly answer socialism? Do. Well, I mean, I, I think that in, in the U.S., the, there has to be greater centralization of the mechanisms of redistribution. I think, mm-hmm. like, you know, I, I've in my more, uh, like, wishful moments, I'm like, yeah, take away their fucking guns and states' rights and just 
to have a central state and subordinate their asses. But I, I, um, <laughs> I digress. <laughs> um, what Hobbes would call a state. Yeah, <laughs> maybe try having a state. Hobbes, try having yeah, a state. Become yeah, yeah. Hobbesian and, and authoritarian and centralized and so on because I'm not sure what else to do. But like I, I, the, the reason that that can come as a fantasy that I don't think I'm serious about, but it's like one of the only other realistic alternatives that I can even conceive of is that when people start talking about just like getting rid of it or like, remember in, in, is it Washington? They had this like autonomous zone and then they just became (laughs) their own cops and killed some kids. And then it was like, we never yeah. talked about that again. Was it the Chaz or something? Or the yeah, Chaz. I mean, that's yeah. like, that shit is crazy. Zone. I don't think we've really meditated on that enough. Like, you actually became the cops. They did. That's, the cops like, the, away, that's yeah. like the Stanford the experiment. Yeah. But, for <laughs> but it actually happened anarchists. in real life. Yeah. 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 I mean, isn't that a W for Foucault, though? You've all been subjectivated into little cops. and you know. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I love the idea of Foucault rising up being like, y'all were hard on me, but here you are back again. Mm. Well, <laughs> speaking of Foucault, though, there was moment one moment that I found interesting in um, one of the articles we read is rather controversially asserting, I think, that what is needed is like more police and less imprisonment. So like. The United States has it backward compared to the rest of, I mean, statistically has it backward compared to the rest of the first world in, in that, you know, the, the ratio of, of like cops to prisoners is completely skewed. There's like a half of a, like, oh, half, it sounds funny to say half a cop, but you know what I mean? like, <laughs> 0.5 of a cop or whatever for every three prisoners. And in the rest of the developed world, it's like three cops for every, like whatever, half a prisoner or whatever. And uh, I, I, one of the things that was funny in that article was that they cited Foucault at one point, Discipline and Punish, because Foucault talks about this transition that took place. It's at the beginning, it's very famous from the beginning of Discipline and Punish, where we went from, in Europe at least, uh, the model of severity to the model of certainty, mm-hmm. right? You went from the severity mm-hmm. of punishment, and in particular, he was describing like a spectacle of severity, like public torture. Yeah, you get Damien on like, the regicide. You scare the you shit out of everyone. <laughs> you don't catch most criminals. You don't catch most, quote, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You don't catch most, quote unquote, criminals, but when you catch them, they're in the center square getting toward their limbs are getting torn off their bodies and stuff. And it's some gigantic, disgusting spectacle. Um, and that there was this like, (laughs) (laughs) and there was this move from severity to certainty, like, okay, it's not going to maybe be as severe of a punishment, like this kind of public humiliation and death, but it's going to be certain that you will get caught. And that was what for Foucault in discipline and punished is like one of the essential facets of modern policing. So in that article, they were like, yeah, the U.S., I, I suppose it would be like a bit of progress if we could, like, we're kind of still in the severity mode in the United States. Like, it's, we actually don't have, like, the certainty is not there. Like, people just do lots of crimes and don't, and, you know, and get away with them. But when you are caught, it's like these insane life sentences or capital punishment. Life without or parole. Life without parole, solitary confinement. Yeah. Like, all, like, the brutality of the punishment of getting, the severity of getting mm-hmm. caught is supposed to be like what, and that's like for Foucault, like the kind of pre-modern, almost like medieval model of punishment <laughs> that the United States like operates on. Anyways, I just thought, yeah, and I'm curious so what you guys US thought about this. the U.S. is not modern. Yeah. yeah, yeah, so the article was like, I mean, if we could just get to what yo, Foucault describes in Discipline and Punish, that would be progress. Like if we could get to that, you know. <laughs> I mean, I don't know that like, here's the thing. Uh, I do think that there is a, a parallel there, and I think the implication is that the U.S. is underdeveloped. If it's underdeveloped in all these other ways, and it's underdeveloped right. in its uh, policing system. But it is true that it's less certain of punishment. Like, w- w- living in Europe for a few years gives you a little, gives me a little perspective. I go home, and it feels like the Wild West. Like, and I'm like, I want to do crimes. Like, I'm not going to get caught. <laughs> You know I'm not going to lie. I think moving from Canada, moving from Canada to the U.S. <laughs> vastly increased my desire to do crimes. I'm not going to lie. Totally. Like the, yeah. I, I mean, it, in all seriousness, I'm like, hell yeah. The parents aren't watching. Yeah. They're not here. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to party. I'm going to go out. You know, I'm, I'm going to live my I, life. The, these are true crimogenic conditions. Absolutely. Merely landing in the U.S. You're just like, fuck. So I mean, it's like go. a, let's let it's a free for all of theft. I mean, uh, yeah, nothing is. Yeah. This is why I'm, I can never leave the United States because like, I'm just hanging out here being like, oh, I should really just go do some embezzlement, some fraud. <laughs> Maybe I can, you know, <laughs> just steal stuff from people. 
I mean, also the cops really won't come after you for embezzlement. They're 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 focused elsewhere. They're good on that one. It's true. So. All joking aside, they're focused elsewhere. So another yes. key feature, if we're going to talk about you know um, the institution of policing, the other aspect of the discretion is it's not only yes. The thing is that you know they are called to address those areas where there seem to be more crimogenic conditions. But we should also talk about you know rather politically. That means those who are you know um, the least empowered, those who are the most vulnerable, are the ones who will interface with the the police most often. And yeah. so I think that there's definitely sort of the, the, the sociological understanding of, of the cops and seeing you know, what it is that they do. But I am also interested in how, you know, because you know, American policing often works this way, it also means that increasingly it, it imperils the legitimacy of the American state such as it is. And so what, what I find here is that this is kind of a looping injustice, that those who are the least empowered find themselves you know, most vulnerable to conditions of crime and thus you know, most often will interface with the cops and often their interfaces with the cops are not pleasant they are often you know not here justice has arrived another issue with you know, policing is that they're often going to these neighbors that they don't really know these people yeah. they don't know who's who you could have someone calling the cops because something is happening and you find yourself to be, be the one being arrested by the cops. Mm -hmm. And what does that do for the legitimacy of these state institutions? And some of what helps these state institutions work is that they are legitimate in the eyes of the people that they govern. And so it strikes me that this is just, you know, another sort of crisis tendency, you know, with the cops in the United States of this underdevelopment, that it is this kind of looping effect of, of, of these conditions and being unable to address the conditions. If I could just add to that, this uh, idea of like, you know, who's doing the policing and they're not from local communities, typically speaking. If you look at the history of the police as an institution in the United States, you find that local municipal police forces, which were the original version, have basically two predecessor institutions that they sort of mutated out of. And that was on the one hand, uh, like night watchman groups, primarily in like Northern uh, states, which were like, you know, local, like self ordering, self uh, defense kinds of organizations. And in the South, it was primarily slave catching uh, organizations. And then the origin of state police forces as distinct from local municipal ones basically were developed out of a need to be able to call the cops in to break strikes because often it would be the case that local cops wouldn't want to do that because it was mm. their own people, their own families and friends mm. who are striking for better working conditions. And so it behooved the government to form state police forces that we could bring them in from other parts of the state to, to break the backs of striking workers. Workers. And I wanted to, to bring this up and to, to piggyback on all this to kind of circle us back, Will, to like the way that you framed this, which I think is super helpful, namely the relationship between the police as an institution and liberalism and political liberalism. Because if you've listened to our previous episodes on the topic, when we read John Locke in our first entry in the series, the conclusion that you kind of can't but come away with when you look at the sort of origins of political liberalism is that it's a political project whose real raison d'etre is just allowing for the conditions of capital accumulation to proceed apace. And so like inserting mm. then, right, like, of course, you know, in a certain sense, the United States is, as we've described, like a, f a weak or failed state and is underdeveloped and is pre-modern and feudalistic in so many ways. But on the other hand, Jeez. it represents... Remember Hegel thought this place was the future? <laughs> <laughs> I do feel like feudal is pushing me too far. Feudal is just like, 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 like the whole point of the American Republic, it, like all of our problems actually come from the fact that there is no prior feudal or... Like, yeah, that, no, like yeah, the, yeah. the pathologies actually begin there. But I was just going to hmm. say though, on the other hand, like it does represent the place where like capital accumulation is like most advanced, right? Which is why we have the highest degrees of income and wealth inequality. And of course, this generates all of these sorts of social disorders and pathologies requiring as a rearguard effort, because listen, we're not going to give people health care. We're not going to give them the opportunity to like, you know, do any wealth redistribution. So when sorts of social pathologies then start to arise amongst like, you know, the working poor. Yeah. You know, bring the bring the cops in. You know, these, this is this is the sort of in, intrinsic connection that I see between these 
uh, social institutional But you were saying forms. something else there, though, that I thought was interesting is that, and this comes through in the Garland, and I think, you know, um, partially I think I, I what I heard, like, Lillian coming from with the whole challenging sort of new Jim Crow idea is that there isn't this sort of um, unified ideology from the top that just, you know, tells the police what to do. Mm-hmm. That, in fact, you know, policing is this, you know, amalgamation of all these institutions spread across municipalities, localities, states, etc. What is happening here is that we also have um, all of these sort of conflicts between institutions and the fact that there isn't you know any sort of um, capacity for robust coordination what happens is because you know the uh, the American social order that you know all of these organizations of the police are defending is this liberal social order of capital accumulation when alternative institutions might arise mm-hmm. that could actually challenge that social order all of a sudden the cops are reintroduced. And so I thought it was really, really important that you brought in the idea of, you know, cops breaking strikes, you know, cops, you know, um, tear gassing protests, you yeah. know, cops, you know, demanding that their authority be respected. And so what I think is also really key there is that all four of us on this podcast, you know, in one way or another, we uh, wish for and envision a different social order. But it seems to me that no matter what type of path you take, if we're really talking about restructuring the social order, at some point, point, you're going to have to ask hard questions about the cops. And by what I mean by that is, how do we change the order that the the cops are called to defend? And that's why it often seems like the cops are incredibly a reactionary force when it comes to alternative institutions, because, you know, know, what Gil describes as a raison d'etre is, you know, from an order in which they are the authority. And so trying to even press against it, even if you think you can move around the cops, once you're challenging things like capital accumulation and wealth, all of a sudden, even if you're not breaking any laws, literally, the institution of the cops will enter into conflict with what you are doing. Yeah. I mean, ask the Black Panthers. I mean, the, their organ- form of organization was utterly intolerable and the cops killed their, you know, killed and incarcerated their leaders. And uh, yeah, I mean, and that, that wasn't just, you know, the kind of image of of retaliatory violence against the police. It's that the Black Panthers built built alternative institutions. Is that they they attempted to build from from food to healthcare to whatever. Like the the problem is that at a certain point the police will not accept like any kind of autonomous social order developing in their presence. So I think that one thing to think about and the thing so the the article that we read about adding more cops um, mm-hmm. I thought there was one important caveat to the proposal, which was that if we can't scale up structural transformation, then there has to be a way of doing it within existing constraints. And so like what's interestingly put off the table about the kind of institutions um, as a thought, like I think it's meant as a thought experiment, like if we can't have a stronger state that can redistribute wealth and do and change its own structure. Like if we can't change the state structure itself, like let's assume pessimism about that, then can we change policing to try to make it more humane, less incarceration, more police, more beat cop, change that situation in which people don't know the, the communities. So like if you have more beat cops, they're actually able to like talk to people, investigate crimes, like invest to find out who does what, who knows whom, have a... Po- and so the certainty of punishment becomes a way of having less punishment. And and I, I think that that's very unattractive to people because you hear more cops and it's just like, how could this be anything but a disaster? Um, but in por- I thought, like in the first paragraph, they're like, we would prefer the alternative, but I don't know who looks at the U.S. and feels optimistic about that. So mm. what else? Yeah. Let's do a thought experience experiment in the other other direction. And I think what's contradictory about it is that in Europe, they have both. So holding one constant and doing the other doesn't, you know, but it's, it's like, Mm -hmm. it's meant to kind of just like, both what? Sorry. Sorry. Both an enorm, both, both a welfare state and and more cops and fewer and less imprisonment. So they have both. So it's like you hold one constant and see what you could do with the other. You know, like to me, it's like, it's interesting to try out the kind of factual. I'm actually happy. I'm like, I was glad to read that article to be able to have a conversation about it because like I appreciate like I appreciate the like when people say abolish the cops like I I would also like that but I also if you feel like a welfare a welfare state is impossible I don't really feel like police abolitionists like there's a there's a set mm-hmm. of like that that's feasible but not this other thing 
or that that's going to do the same thing as this other thing. Like these are just not like I, I like being able to try to test out different possibilities within constraints. Like if you don't think it's possible to have a social democracy, well, if and, and that might be the background conditions that are needed. What else could we do? And I don't think that it's harmful just to, I don't think it's harmful to, you know, in quotes, ask questions. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. Because abolition isn't, like you can talk about like devolving it locally, community control and so on. But then you know, there's also problems with that given the problem is often the local nature of the control and the underdevelopment of the state. Mm-hmm. So like these are a series of puzzles and I think it's, I just think it's totally fine to just try out try out the alternatives because it's a pretty bleak situation either way, you know, like mm-hmm. um, make a little headway. Oddly enough, like my my objection to the thesis of that paper is similar to my objection to the abolish the police, like no, the notion of abolishing the police. My my problem with like abolish the police is that it, it, it is tantamount to saying abolish the state and abolish capital because it, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's abstracting it from the social totality in which the police are a necessary and obvious consequence. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and that's, an, an issue that I also had with that paper, which is that like mm-hmm. adding more police to try to get to more of what they call the first world balance of, you know, more cops, less incarceration in a vacuum, like abstracting it from all of the, the social totality of the United States, also going beyond the United States, but social of the United States just seems to me incredibly idealistic, like totally unmoored from any material reality or historical continuity or yeah, that, that was my, I actually have a similar issue with both like abolish the police and we'll just add more police. I suggested we reread that article because I also thought the thought experiment, it it was nice for me as, you know, a quote unquote lefty. I wanted to see what this argument would look like. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I understood, you know, Mm -hmm. it's speculative and they give a nice little moral argument of, you know, this is about prioritizing those who are the least served or who need the most. And so what I realized there while reading it, what this thought experiment helped me to see is, you know, because I'm thinking a lot about institutions now. In the Hodgkin's article, he makes a distinction between institutions that are agent-sensitive and agent-insensitive. And so even in this thought experiment, I think it's a, it's useful to ask, how sensitive is the institution of the police to the different agents we populated with? In other words, one of the ways that the United States you know, even tries to think about police reform is sensitivity training stuff. And yet we have not noticed that the sensitivity training of, <laughs> hey, turns out black poor people are human too, actually stops the police from shooting. I think actually last year was one of the deadliest years for police shootings and not just black people. I also want to say, because I could see some annoying person on Twitter being like, you don't know that actually the police kill white people. Yeah. The police kill a lot of white people numerically kill them more than black people. And so, you know, I think this raises the question of what type of institution is the police? And that's, a, I mean, that's not something we'll be able to solve in the space of one episode. But one thing at least we should actually explicitly put on the table is, is the institution of the police the type of institution that is agent sensitive or agent insensitive? Mm-hmm. If it is agent sensitive, then maybe also it's worthwhile getting more black police chiefs, more women police chiefs. But I think all of us right here in this podcast have seen black police chiefs and women police chiefs do almost the same exact thing that any other police chief would do. And so and we all watched I, The know, Wire growing up and then forgot about it. I'm glad we it's back. We forgot about The Wire. Forgot yeah, we're, we're wire. glad it's back. And so what, what's also really difficult, what's really great about this you know, thought experiment that makes it difficult is it makes you ask, how much room is there to modify how policing works within this social totality as as Owen described it? And so, you know, when I was thinking through the thoughts, but the last thing I'll say, this is my philosopher side of me, you know, they talk about, of course, more police means more interface between citizens and the police. And so they try to make the argument that, you know, from their hypotheses, this will lead to less um, killings by the police. They say that as less police violence, but I don't know if that would actually mean less sort of arrest, less tasing, less getting thrown against the concrete. And so what's also interesting in this thought experiment is, so what might be the social consequences, even if 
killings by the police decline, but there is more sort of violent engagements between citizens and the police. I don't think that this leads to a positive answer, but, you know, again, I was really appreciative of this article to make me try to think through what that would mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to just kind of like piggyback and interject that maybe the language of abolish the police is is bad rhetorically because it sounds like something other than what it actually is. Like if you actually read police and prison abolitionist work stuff, of course, like Angela Davis, but also more recently, Mariam Kaba, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, like they're all explicit that like the project of abolition here doesn't just mean like a negative thing. Just, it doesn't just mean removing one institution and having a gap or void be left in its wake. They're explicit from the start that like what it actually means is a project of reconstructing a set of social political institutions that would actually under undo those conditions of cryogenesis as we've been describing them in place of this sort of, you know, one size fits all hammer turning everything into a nail. So, I mean, maybe one thing just then to say is like, we should maybe rethink the language for one thing. Normies, hate the idea of abolishing the police. They are, it's very hard, even when you have like the longer conversation with them about like, no, actually we mean like, you know, building better schools and, you know, welfare and redistribution and labor protections and all of that, in addition to getting, you know, guns off, or, you know, less guns on the street or whatever. Uh, it, it's a very difficult sell for a lot of people. I don't know, maybe maybe just like, just abandoning that rhetoric in favor of something else, like, I don't know, re- more constructive vision is in fact what's at stake here about what what we ought to do in terms of building a society that actually, you know, isn't so completely dysfunctional. I mean, I think something, so I do want to answer a little bit the question of would there be less violent interactions? There are two levels to that. I think if the comparison is with Europe, the answer is unequivocally yes. Like there's less violence, period, with encounters with the cops. And they are not, and they're not, like there's different levels. I don't totally understand all the levels in every country, but like that just is the case. Um, So much so that like, you know, there's, my my partner got stopped by a cop and was like freaked out. And the cop actually said, no, no, no. And this is a German cop. So this is a grain of salt. You can laugh at this. But he goes, no, no, no. We are. He was like, we're not like the American cops. I'm here to help you. I'm not going to beat you up. <laughs> yeah, you know, so like there's a, you know, American cop saying that. <laughs> yeah, He's like, no, no, no. We're here to help. So, you know, I don't necessarily think they're there to help. But like the point is, is that it actually is a different uh, thing and there is before any Europeans get mad at me. I know that there are instances of police brutality, but there's no, it is nothing like the scale that we're talking about in this episode. So I do think that it would change. But a, a significant thing that may, gives me pause about that, like in principle, it could change. I'm saying what gives me pause about it is the level of militarization of both yes. the population and the police. Yes, and I I think that I I think like the gun issue is like a liberal hobby horse in some ways, but, and I, and I used to be much more like tis, tis, tisking at that. Uh, in recent years, I've just been like, at some point they're a constitutive part of the problem. It's a violent population that's armed. And so like this encourages violent interactions. I don't know what else to say, to say about it, but that, I think that's important. So there's, there's like more political layers. Cause that's a constitutional right that, that you're talking about, not just like cultural habits, you know? Mm-hmm. So the political layer of that mm-hmm. is like kind of deep. Anyway, this is kind of yeah. – I'm getting really pessimistic this episode. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm feeling it too. I'm feeling the light dim. And uh, I, I – oh, and you want to jump in. Sorry. Well, no, I, I just wanted to say quickly that like I, I have a hard time holding this together, that holding these two things together, which is that one, like the, a lot of the data that's cited in the papers we read is obviously right. I mean you're, the interaction between police and, and citizens in Europe is ex- way less violent. And the situation – in Europe with regard to policing is very difficult to compare to the United States because the United States Mm -hmm. is so fucking brutal and so dysfunctional. But at the same time, and France is the only country in Europe with which I have like decent familiarity. It's as far as I understand, like the situation isn't great. I mean, the, the police in France are utterly loathed by proletarian and subproletarian neighborhoods there's extensive like sociological research on the on on the principal on, on their principal activity being one of like public humiliation and harassment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 
terrible to to be in like a quartier populaire, like a, a working class neighborhood, or even I get, like I said, a sub proletarian neighborhood of undocumented migrants, of people who are like chronically un, unemployed, and like the police serve a function there that is utterly brutal. And so I I, I guess the only reason I bring this up is to say that like this is the the part of me that I, I that has difficulty when Europe is held up as like if we could. Hey, I get it because the U.S. is so much worse in some ways. But like, if we yeah. could just get to this disgusting situation of of fucking domination, and get beyond this murderous and brutal system of domination, like that would be an improvement. This, I don't know. Maybe that's a little bit crass of a way to put it. But like, yeah, the French police are also heavily militaristic, and you know, there's great research done on like the evolution of the federal police in France, the gendarmerie. They just come out of like out of anti-colonial rebellions and like learning how to suppress them. And then they take those tactics and they train their police in the same tactics they used in Algeria and in French Indochina, you know, to use them now in banlieues of, of French cities. And so I, I don't want to overstay that point because I know that like it's not I don't disagree with what some of the points that were made in that paper and what you were just saying, Lillian. It's just that I there's a part of me that just bristles at the idea of holding at least somewhere like France up as any kind of, as a marker of progress. Like if we could achieve the French level of police domination, <laughs> then we would, you know what I mean? I do know what you mean, but I'm just saying, like I'm looking at the numbers right now. France, I, the last numbers I can find are for mm-hmm. 2019. Okay, in 2021, they killed two people. 2020, it was 32. So that was probably when the pro- protests were happening, I, I would guess. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., 1,500 and – no, 1,276. Well, yeah, the no, first world average is five, right? It's like five murders, yeah. police murders so, a year in the so first like world. I, I, yeah. and, and to be fair, for, from like a perspective of what a free society is like, I totally agree with you. But the reason the comparison is important is because the only nations with comparable numbers are like – are much less developed places. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like with, with – whose state infrastructures are weak for more uh, – obvious reasons. And it's like the the sociological puzzle, I think, demands the comparison, even if normatively. And so it depends, like what kind of normative scale do you want to use? I actually like the, the question. I'm, I yeah. like the, compa- I think the comparison is salient from the perspective of understanding what the prop, the nature of the problem. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, um, I mean, agree, I agree. Like you, you want reforms that resemble something that you don't actually think to be just that's you know that's a, a weird way of that, that's a good way of, that's a good way of articulating I guess like yeah I, mean, fair, I, mean, I, I fair don't enough, disagree I, with you but yeah that, that is the that yeah that is my problem I I want to jump in here and say you know just you know two quick things the, the reason why I wasn't even like really joking I was like I'm feeling the light dim because you <laughs> especially when you know, Lily you're talking about how many guns are in the, in the United States yeah, and the fact that we're not just talking about a, a cultural thing we're talking about a right you know I, I know I'm, I'm beating a dead horse here but you know it's really hard to see what the avenues are reformed because when the United States has such a different institutional setup and you know such you um, years and years and generations of institutional inertia that we would have to be talking about really radically revising this social order. And I don't just mean the redistribution. We also would have to be talking about actually the the underlying constitution that the state you know holds to itself of you know what its red lines are. And when you get there, this is why I think sometimes it can seem as if you know we're saying redistribution can't happen, reforming. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) police can't happen it's because the united states really is a nightmare form of liberalism it is and it is unclear what liberalism itself has as an antidote to that as you know a kind of response except to say you you all should have started with a better social order (laughs) and it's like yeah i mean if i was there at the beginning i would have tried to do it differently but no one asked me yeah um and and so like you i i I want the second thing i wanted to say is you know i know some people might react to how we talked about a the police and basically you know I, from my point of view the point is this we all know it is definitely more of a slogan but I think all fours what we've been trying to say is lay out the real social and material and institutional contradictions that hamper even the positive program that's being enunciated by it not that it's not a worthy goal not that you know we should find different
different ways of you know, doing community and social control and integration. But there is something really disastrous about the U.S. social order that does not admit of easy answers. And yeah. so, you know, for me, like the really hard question is, you know, how do we begin building institutions in what is increasingly a failing social order that is increasingly you know, relying on repressive institutions, not just circumscribe our imaginations. I know, but then scare quotes, but like circumscribe <laughs> our actual social capacities. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, you know, I, I wish that like, this episode could end on a more positive note of where <laughs> to go forward, but none of what we've read actually <laughs> has a positive way forward. But, you know, at least what we can do is try to get clear in the problem. And the last thing I want to say before we leave is another real hard thing with the problem in the United States is actually getting accurate data on what the police are doing, you know, where the crimes are. That is still really, really difficult. All the articles we've read, they're like, yeah, there's missing data. There's missing We're data. doing the best that we can. Part and of so the problem with it, that, by the way, is that like most of the data is self-reported. Like by the police themselves. And it's because they'll go back because the police are so decentralized. You know, yeah. we talk about the institution of the police, but there isn't one central network that, you know, is actually monitor all these activities. And so that might seem like a minor thing, but even the knowledge issue is not easy to come by in the United States when it comes to the police. Yeah, I, th I think that uh, something that it when I have more optimistic moments of like what could change I feel like thinking about the con like the federal system and the constitutional structure. I, I get that you're not going to like take away P the Second Amendment immediately. Um, so barring barring that, there are I I, th I think thinking about ways to change the scope and shape of states' rights. You know that is like what we've inherited from the Confederacy, and I think that. It is really a minor, minoritarian. I, I feel strongly about this, actually. I think the Republican Party is a minoritarian party. Oh, yeah. And I think that, like, it is able to govern in a minoritarian way is in the same way that it has for a long time because of, you know, this the, the way the federal balance is structured. So if you're thinking about, like, if, if you're somebody who likes elections and that kind of stuff or, like, petitioning, like, if you want to be involved in, in state mm. government and everything... I, I think that like there's some real like head knocking to go on to like have a ca campaigns for for democracy, especially in in rural states and in the South. And I think that that doesn't always seem like it's directly about the police, but I think it's inadvertently about the police. Yeah, and yeah. in the mm -hmm. same way that I think redistribution on a federal level, like yeah. creating the state infrastructure to be able to redistribute on a federal level, weakens the federal system. That's partly why people are so against it. And so I also think that that is uh, a way of inadvertently getting at this kind of localism and the, the police power. So there, there are ways of wearing down the political yeah. power of the police that might not seem like they are immediately mm -hmm. abolition, but that might eventually create the leverage to create change. So that's why I actually like these materialist arguments is like they have me yeah. thinking about mm -hmm. the country, not just about what the cops like do, which is it, it puts those things together for me. It's about increasingly like winnowing away the very social conditions that allow the police to be so salient as an institution. Absolutely. And I think that like that these articles are great for showing us that like I think I'm totally sold on this, that the proper context or framework within which to make sense of what a long term project of trying to winnow away the saliency of police power would be, have to address it at the level of political economy. Right, which is why this is about, you know, America's ultra liberalism in this classical sense at the end of the day, mm -hmm. more than anything else. On that point, what I was going to say before is that I, I think just going back to where we started, I'm really glad you included this in the What is Liberalism yeah, uh, series because I hope others I, like it, too. I can see it's getting no, blown be, up for it. But no, I'm so happy you did that because it is something that actually drives me nuts that like there is. And again, I'm generalizing a little bit, but there is like a, a hesitance or not even a hesitance, just an ignorance like on the part of people that that want to theorize and think about liberalism philosophically uh, to include <laughs> the point where liberalism meets people's fucking bodies. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? As like that's an extrinsic that's an extrinsic concern. I'm I'm doing normative work here and justifying this or that. 
It is such an insanely like uh, like abstract, ahistorical, self-indulgent, and like cowardly way <laughs> to think about liberalism without. Thinking, oh, are you holding like, back, Owen? Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do, like, how do you feel, man? Like, are you okay? <laughs> you, you, it, you shouldn't be allowed to think about it without friggin' thinking about <laughs> it's uh, it, like it, the point of enforcement, which is not extrinsic to all of that philosophical work. It's essential. There's no point of doing any of that unless you have some conception of what materially in the world it looks like to live in the kind of social order that your normative vision is trying to articulate. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So yeah, thank you, Will. Yeah, thanks, Will. <laughs> yeah, well, no, thank you. That does it for us today. New episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Also, check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to sit right there. Sorry. You should have to edit that out. I, I don't know why that's the first time. Wow. Take a minute to sit right there. <laughs> what? I don't know where that came from. I couldn't stop. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you, and we're really grateful. Today's new patrons are BS. Zachary Truboff, Connor, Anthony D. Cox, Zane, Paul Duke, Luke Meser, Anthony P., Jonathan Marston, Alexander Gorman, Jason Morton, Casey Mather, Aaron Jenkins, Anders Riel Mahler, Neil C., Kai Milanovich, Toby Turtle, Jack Jones, Susan Hecht, Amy Chor. Thank you all very much. If you too like what we're doing and want to support the show, please go to our website, leftofphilosophy.com and click the support button. Patrons get access to exclusive content like lock episodes, bonus videos, and access to our Discord server. You can also buy some What's Left of Philosophy merch from the store linked on our website. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil. And don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app. With that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.